Hi, everyone. This is Jay, creator and host of Hot Stirrer Podcast. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety. In a country without universal health care, and in a nation with one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. And as I discussed in episode 104, this decision goes beyond the horrifying loss of bodily autonomy and privacy rights, as it may have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions that affect access to contraception, the legality of same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships, interracial marriage, and other decisions related to civil rights and liberties. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. everyone, and welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, George Azar. George is the author of My Gay Church Days, his memoir about his time in evangelical Christianity. My Gay Church Days is the true story of an evangelical pastor who was striving to live out Christianity while carrying a secret about himself until ultimately deciding that he had enough. Welcome, George. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. Man, I need to have you start writing some of my material. That was a great intro. Oh, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) So what made you decide to make your story into a book? Great question. Um, So I actually, it's so funny. I, um, it all started actually one night uh, with my friend, uh, her name is Victoria in the book. Her real name's Alana, and I've gotten approval to to, to share that because she's one of my best friends. Okay, uh, cool. so <laughs> yeah. So during the pandemic, it was so interesting. You know, like like most people, it was such a turbulent time. But for me, I really like was excited about it. Yeah, I was working in public accounting, and I was excited to be able to work from home, not have to do my commute, all of that. But as the months went on, I started to to seep into this uh, deep depression, depressive state again. I lost my mom earlier uh, in the year in February, right before the pandemic hit. And we had a very complicated relationship. So I was contending with those emotions. And then also just kind of going back to a former addiction of mine. Um, I used to be addicted to opioids in college. Um, and so I started to dip into that again. And I was having a night with my friend Alana and she, we were a couple bottles of wine in and, and she asked me, she's like, babe, I don't know much about your church days. Can you, can you share a little bit about it? So I actually shared with her, um, it's actually chapter 11 in the book, uh, on Jake. It's the story about my time with a, with my roommate who appeared, you know, to be straight, but we would partake in these, what we, what he deemed as, as bro sessions. And so kind of just told her the whole story about that. And she looked at me dead faced and she's like, you need to write this book. This will help so many people. And so shortly after she left, I actually ended up writing the entire chapter of Jake. The next morning, I woke up with a blistering hangover and wrote a couple more chapters. <laughs> and yeah, over the course of three weeks, I had a final manuscript and or a rough draft manuscript. Um, but but yeah, as I was going through the book, I was very conscious about 
really making it relatable for people to understand whether they have gone through their own experiences or they have children that were LGBTQ in a, in a, in a, a religious environment, just to understand the struggle and to really have this, this relatability to my story. Okay, so you would say that people who have gone through similar experiences, as well as people whose children have gone through some similar experiences, would be a great audience for your book? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, you know, it's it's so funny that the comments and DMs that I get are very much from people who are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea anybody else went through this or, you know, experienced something like that, or or even the terminology you know, they, they felt very isolated and alone. And so a lot of the response that I've been getting back is from people who have felt isolated from evangelical Christianity, and especially as a LGBTQ identifying individual, they're, they're, we're treated much differently than the rest of the congregation in so many respects. And so it was really empowering knowing that, that the message that I was trying to get across in my book was really for those who have been through that struggle. Uh, it's also a great read for people who just want to hear a crazy, <laughs> crazy adventure. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Because honestly, as someone who also used to be an evangelical, and I left evangelicalism myself, that experience is, I mean, obviously, we have different we, we have unique experiences, but I think that there's something about the evangelical experience that people who have not been a part of that just don't get. And mm. it's just, it's just crazy to be able to share that. I've talked to my husband about it and my husband grew up pretty much agnostic and mm. he doesn't have that frame of reference. And so just, sharing different aspects of that experience with him sometimes he's just like wow that's wild <laughs> <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i love when people are like shocked they're like they said what or they did what you know like <laughs> right yeah but it's like being part of that experience there are things about those experiences that mm. i think be being in it you can understand you can kind of see where other people are coming from even though there may be some unique points to it but there's still certain commonalities absolutely and that's so funny because like that's that's another uh, a, a lot of like messages that i get too where they're like look i i'm i don't identify as lgbtq but i identify so much with your story and like going through and listening to I, I mean, it's just, it, it's so funny. It's all recycled garbage uh, in the church, I've noticed. You know, when you hear like, pray the gay away, or if you hear, you know, let the Lord lead you, or, or just those terms. Right. Like, it just, it's all the same. Like everybody, you know, like the whole ideas, you know, around abortion and gun rights and all that. It's literally whatever is is taught at the pulpit is what's reverberated it's almost like they these people have become you are at, you know and, and these people me myself included yeah you know, same become, same <laughs> yeah like become vessels like you know it's like there, there's that you know be a vessel for for god's glory and all that but it's like no you're just creating people to be vessels for your own glory <laughs> you yeah. know <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, so how would you describe your memoir, My Gay Church Days, in maybe a couple of sentences? Yeah, it's just the story of a, a profoundly insecure kid who was looking for belonging and acceptance and found it in a church that promised him reprieve and, and healing from his, his deepest, darkest sin, I think. Okay. So a lot of times how we engage with evangelicalism and our experiences depend on so many factors, including identity. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, for me, I'm a black American woman. And when I was in evangelicalism for a good chunk of it, actually the first, cause I first became an evangelical in college mm. and I was part of a campus ministry. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of InterVarsity. Yes. Uh-huh. Very okay. familiar. Yeah. yeah. And so I was part of InterVarsity and my chapter was predominantly Asian. Mm -hmm. And so it was mostly Asian and some white Americans. And then there was myself and um, someone else who was one of my close friends who was black. So it was just yeah. the two of us and in, in this group of Asian and white people. 
And that was that was definitely an interesting experience because it was still the evangelical experience, but it was filtered through some other cultural touchstones. Mm. So there was that. And then on top of that, having some other some other experiences. I was in a mega church for a while when I first became a Christian. And then I was at a storefront and then I went to grad school and that was and I think like part of the way through grad school, I started to deconstruct, but that's a whole nother thing. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. right. And so I guess I bring this up to say, to what degree do you think intersectionality? And so, for example, when I read your story, there's definitely the threat of being gay. Mm. But then also you kind of talked about not as much, but it still came up a little bit, but also being um, Middle Eastern descent. Yeah. To what degree do you think intersectionality has played a role in your story, um, especially your experience in evangelicalism? Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, it, 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 the the evangelical system, I think, is really bait, built up on, you know, a white cisgender patriarchy. It's very much about American values and doing good before God and country and all these, you know, these things that that are not necessarily spoken about in the Bible, but we hear jokes about how surfer Jesus and all that stuff. But it really is. I mean, you know, the the evangelical church is a sect of white old males (laughs) that are continuing to propagate their own hatred towards minority groups and, and females. I mean, you look at, I mean, purity culture is a perfect example of that, you know, where women were held to a such different standard than men when it came to keeping themselves pure. For women, it was like, you could not dress a certain way because you could cause a man to stumble. You couldn't flirt with a guy in a way because then he would think that you are interested in him sexually and all that. It was really very much about protecting the males, not so much about protecting people as a whole. And so women, minorities were always held to different standards. You know, it was like, I, I remember like even certain teachings, like it was very clear that they were teaching from a cultural perspective that is of the white American person. And, you know, what's funny is, is being a, a byproduct of, of immigrants. I mean, outside of Christianity, a lot of immigrants uh, aspire for the American dream because it's, you know, they've heard of America being the greatest you know, na- uh, nation in the world and, you know, it's prosperity and all of that. So I found, you know, even in my own family unit that uh, there was a lot of conformity to American culture for the sake of, of one day achieving that American dream. And so I think that's all encompassing. You know, we look at American culture, I think, especially in the 90s, we were taught that that our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs and all of that. Right. You, at, you know, it's so yeah. funny. You, and, and so what were your Judeo-Christian beliefs at the time? Well, they believed in slavery. Like in James chapter four, it talks about, you know, how to uh, treat a master and how to treat uh, a slave. And so it's like, I think as Christian, as American culture has evolved, so has the American uh, evangelical. However, they still hold on to this these ideals that really do uh, help out and and prop up the patriarchy and specifically white cisgender males. Yeah, and that definitely makes sense. And um, just to, I mean, to give you a little bit of background in terms of myself and some of my academic background. So I have a PhD in political science from University of Cincinnati, and. Wow. My my dissertation was about was basically comparing the white evangelical tradition to the black Protestant tradition mm. in terms of individual morality versus corporate morality or social morality and how that influenced how these groups tend to vote. Mm. Yeah. And so a lot of that research went into some of the history and like I focused a lot on looking at some of the history of a lot of like white evangelical denominations. And the interesting thing is, you know, and it really kind of speaks to what you're talking about, the fact that like a lot of these denominations came to be due to either slavery or Jim Crow. Yep. Yep. 
the so the foundation is of of like racism and white supremacy mm-hmm. and then you also have the you also have patriarchy tied into that as well yeah and so yep. yeah and so like if you yeah if you look at some of the history it just it it continues to sh- shine through absolutely and it's so interesting because i mean you even look at jerry falwell like he one of the 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 biggest leaders in the the galvanizing the evangelical vote and what what has resulted in today's voting block jerry falwell the the founder of liberty university my alma mater uh, unfortunately he made his popularity on segregation. Like he, in the fifties and sixties, he was lobbying to ensure that schools were still segregated because he thought it was based off of biblical teachings that white people were different than, than minorities and then black people than Brown people. And so it's so, you're absolutely right. I would love to, to read your dissertation. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. If you're ever curious, it's, um, it's actually linked on my website in my about section. That's a, a subject that doesn't go that doesn't get uh, talked about very often because it's drowned out. It's it's something that people don't you know, especially Christians don't want to talk about. It's like, you know, you want to talk about your complicated past and, you know, or if you want to do right by people, you need to you need to come to terms with your complicated past and how you've treated people and still continue to treat people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Your memoir resonated with me for a lot of reasons. Now, in your book, you don't really add specific dates to the book, but some of the evangelical trends and cultural touchstones. So, for example, when you're talking about apologetics and these debates on God's existence and Rush Limbaugh and George W. Bush and Mm -hmm. like a lot of that gave me the impression that we probably came of age and lived as evangelicals during a similar time frame. So some of the things that you talked about, it really made me think of some of the experiences that I had. And, you know, and then also as a former evangelical um, who became an evangelical Christian as a young person, rather than being born into it. Mm. For me, your story was particularly relatable. To give you just a little bit more background, I grew up in a family where my mom was and still is to a degree she's fairly she's a fairly conservative christian but she comes from the black church experience like the black church tradition and so there's some overlap with evangelicalism there's fear of hell fire and brimstone some of that kind of stuff but in other ways it's pretty distinct so less focus on abortion and not the same push to like say you have to be a Republican to be a good Christian. Right. So there's, so those things were different, but there are some similarities. And then my dad, on the other hand, he, he had grown up Roman Catholic, but then as an adult, he dabbled in a bunch of different belief systems. He was very much sort of a free spirit in that way. Like he was spiritual, but he was always trying to kind of figure it out. And he was sort of more open-minded in that regard. Yeah. And so for myself, growing up, I was functionally agnostic. I went to Catholic schools throughout most of my childhood, but it was like dabble in and out of church for a little bit, but I wasn't sure if I believed it. When it comes to the evangelical experience, there are people like us who there are certain things that we can, we maybe experience that it's like, oh, I can see that. And oh, that makes sense. But for people outside of that, it's like, well, what the heck? So, so yeah. So, you know, sometimes like people who have never been evangelicals or even ex-evangelicals or former evangelicals who were born into the faith mm-hmm. will sometimes ask, why would you choose this? Yeah, right. So, right. Yeah. So, so like why, so for you, why would, why did you choose it? Yeah, for me, it, it was, it was multifaceted. I was wildly tortured as a middle schooler. I was in a, a a smaller elementary school. And so for me, it was very much a place where I could redefine my identity. Um, I ended up having depressive episodes and, 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 you know, suicidal thoughts and all of that. And there was somebody who introduced me to Christianity that I worked with when I was a freshman in high school. And I kind of like mocked her or whatever, and I ended up going. 
And I saw, you know, the people there were just so nice. They were so friendly, so accommodating, and nobody there knew me. And so it was kind of this like opportunity for me to kind of redefine my identity. But as I as I started to press in deeper, I also had this hidden secret, my homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And my brother is also gay. He's older and he had a very um, uh, turbulent time coming out. And so I saw what happened to him and I wanted nothing to do with that. I mean, I knew that I had my own feelings and stuff. And so the church was great for me in so many respects because it allowed me to, one, form my new identity, but two, also find a cure. It was the only thing that had a cure for my deepest, darkest sin. And so those things really were with a big motivation. And it's funny because I didn't, I didn't realize how much my dependency upon the church was until actually I, I had left the church and started going to therapy. And I, t- I talked to my therapist. I was like, there was one day I was like, I was like, uh, doctor, I think, I think I may be a sociopath. And she's like, she's like, uh, or, or a narcissist. That's what it was. I was like, I think I might be a narcissist. And she's like, wait, what? Why? Why do you think that? I was like, well, you know, I constantly think about myself. I think how horrible I am, blah, 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 all that. And she's like, George, I've, I've done enough training to know that you're not a narcissist. I've known you long enough to know you're not a narcissist. She's like, the one common thing that I've found out throughout your life and, and, and getting to know you is all you've ever wanted to, to, to do was belong. And that's when it hit me. And I think I wrote about this in the book where I was like, well, I, all I wanted was community. I wanted somebody to love me, to accept me. And this whole time, you know, the, the church had these very strict rules being an analytical type person, there were very strict rules that I would follow in order to be accepted by them. And I was okay with that up to the point when I started to come into contention, it came into contention with my identity. Mm. And so, so yeah, a lot of it really had to do with just having community, having people that I, I thought loved and cared about me, who were really just trying to mold me into their own image, you know, as opposed to me finding being myself and being free to be myself in front of those people. But I was okay with that because I knew that that was quote unquote, the best I could do with who I was. And so, yeah, it really was that, that the initial draw was the belonging, but then what, what really added fuel to that fire was really finding that cure quote unquote for my deepest, darkest sin. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that was something that through the book, it really that was one of those threads was that it was like on one hand, you wanted to belong, but then you but then I'm sure it probably felt like even though you wanted to belong, there was this part of you that it it was like, okay, you couldn't live in your truth. Mm -hmm. And you were told that like who you were your sexual orientation, like it, that there was something wrong with that. And like, you basically had to take that on in order to belong. And I mean, that sounds like a very, that's a very high price. Absolutely. That's absolutely what it was. I mean, it, it was just, I had to sacrifice so much of myself in order to, to fit. And I was okay with that because everywhere else that I, you know, whether it was, you know, at school or it was with family or wherever it was, I didn't feel at place. I felt like I needed to find some, my own tribe in a sense. And the church seemed to be the most viable option. That makes a lot of sense. I personally have never experienced um, being gay or being being LGBTQ+. I can definitely resonate with like growing up, not fitting in school. Like I, I was teased and like made fun of and bullied throughout school pretty much Mm. and so okay so basically my senior year i was getting my hair done and all that and i had these there were these hairdressers that would do my hair that first uh evangelized to me oh wow yeah and it sounded like for someone who was trying to figure out like where i fit and everything it sounded it sounded intriguing And then when I went off to college, like I went to my, my undergrad was Ohio State. And mm-hmm. so like so I moved from Detroit to Columbus and I didn't know anybody. Like most of the people I graduated with, I went to a small high school. Most of the people I graduated with stayed in Michigan. So mm-hmm. 
when I went down to Ohio, it was like I didn't know anyone. I was basically starting over. And the first week of school, there were a couple of, of people that came up to me and they're like, yeah, like, like, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I'm like, Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I got to lose. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, and then uh and then it was like I started to meet people that were in the church and I started to sort like it was like, oh, these are these are people that are getting to know me and it was like, oh, this is a place where I can belong and all this kind of stuff. Now, for me it wasn't like I didn't have the situation where yeah. Like it wasn't something that I was hiding in that way, but it was more of like there was sort of like the strain inside of me that was very that still wanted to not only be accepted, but also to accept other people. I grew yeah. up in a family where we we were very tolerant of other people as far as like like my dad especially had friends that came from different countries and were of different religions and and so I grew up having sort of a mind of being tolerant and trying to understand different perspectives and mm. everything. And it was like, I was joining a group that it was, it seemed great at first, but then there were little things that were speaking like intolerance. So, as, right. you know, so like, especially like, so surrounding race and surrounding sexuality and, you know, it was like, and I, I know with the sexuality piece, I first like sort of sort of embraced it, but it was like embracing it, but kind of feeling weird about it. Yeah. To make a long story short, what actually got me out of evangelicalism was when my sister came out. She's lesbian. Mm-hmm. And and it caused a lot of tension and mm. you know and everything. And I yeah. I absolutely hated that. And I was like, if this is the fruit of evangelicalism, then I don't want any part of this. Right. Right. You know, it's so funny. Until somebody actually experiences uh, somebody who is LGBTQ, it's hard for them to wrap their their head around the idea. Because like, I mean, it's so funny. I was just at a a book reading this, this past Sunday. And there were, there were, uh, there was an older, uh, well, th- there was an older couple and then there was another couple and they were telling me that, you know, they, they were in an evangelical church and then their son came out as gay. And so then that's what started it for them in, in really departing from the evangelical system because they realized how intolerant it was, how even, even with them asking questions, they were being judged and such. And so it's so it's so interesting. I really do think that a lot of the ignorance, you know, and, and you probably understand this too, being being a black woman, like people people who don't have interactions with people who aren't like them, it's easy for them to have assumptions about it based off of what other people are telling them, especially in the church. I mean, when you look at homosexuality, I mean, it was just destigmatized. Uh, homosexuality was just destigmatized um, or downgraded as a mental illness in 1973 from the American Psychiatric Association. Mm-hmm. However, the belief that that, you know, it's associated with pedophilia and bestiality is still alive and well in the evangelical church. So until somebody actually comes into contact with somebody who is actually of LGBT of the LGBTQ community, I think that people are are left in that ignorance and and continue in that ignorance and have justification for it based off of particular Bible verses that have nothing to do with homosexuality. However, because what their pastor is teaching them is is Bible, <laughs> you know. Right. So, so for them to like challenge that would actually put them on the outside. So until somebody really does have that impact of somebody, you know, that's not like them. I think that they'll they'll continue to to be in that ignorance because they have no they have no reason to be challenged. Right. Yeah. And I think now I think for me, like it was sort of a process because and, and I'm in looking back, I'm so grateful for that because going to Ohio State, you're gonna come across a lot of different types of people. And yeah. so there were experiences that I had there and to to degree in grad school, but especially at Ohio State that kind of even though I was deep in the church at that point it was like it sort of planted the seed you know sort of kind of got the wheels turning a little bit Mm. and got me to the point where when my sister came out 
I was I I could be someone that was there for her as opposed to condemning her. Mm, yeah. You know, the people that I that I met that really that were really patient with me and all that they didn't have to be. They didn't have to use their emotional labor. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and and it's not something I would and and honestly, yeah, I, it's not something I would recommend to to anyone to to feel like they have to do, you know? Right. Um right. but yeah, but I was just really, you know, I was really lucky in that regard. And you know, and so I was sort of primed that by the time that that happened, I was ready. Yeah. 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 I love that. Like it and I think that's it too that like it I mean everybody's on their own journey, you know, and it's like I think like I have a lot more grace for people who are trying to figure it out, who, you know, come come to the table with an an open mind, you know, where I have less tolerance is, you know, a couple of days ago, actually, I had someone DM me and just started berating me, you know, with Bible verses and all this. And I, I, I just let her have it, like, you know, <laughs> just like, for to say the least, like, it, you know, because. I, I have no patience for somebody who who thinks that they know better than me than my own experience. Um, but you know, people we we there's a fine line between like somebody who is is being an inquisitor or just being an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> oh, definitely. <You> know? <laughs> <laughs> definitely, I hear you. <laughs> so you know, you talked about your your desire and motivation to fit in, and like that was a constant thread throughout your story, both in evangelicalism as well as once you left. Now, focusing in on evangelicalism, do you think that it has maybe a tendency to seize on vulnerabilities like that in order to convert new believers? And if so, what like what do you think that kind of looks like? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more predatory than the evangelical system. I mean, God, the whole concept, yeah. <laughs> right? Like the whole concept of salvation in and of itself is predatory. You know, it's like, it's so interesting to me, this whole conversation about groomers and drag queens and all of that. And I'm like, well, wait a second, these are being levied by the ultimate groomers and and indoctrinators of, of our time. Like, you know, they're literally teaching their kids that they are dirty, rotten sinners, that they are that are desperately wicked, that they are not good in and of themselves, and that they need someone else to save them. Like, if we took that out of the context of religion, and we put that in any other type of, of, of context, that would be abuse, we oh, would yeah. instantly label that abuse, totally. you know, and so, yeah. you know, the, just because a, a, a supposed deity has some sort of authority, in that doesn't make it any better. I mean, the psychological effect that that has on it. So Anyway, so there's the indoctrination of, of our youth that's happening. Then there's also those, you know, that, that, yeah, that are prone to more depressive, more suicidal type tendencies, i.e. me. They, they really do harp on people feeling low about themselves. And then that justification is reinforced with the doctrine of salvation and, and the concept of sin and hell. And so it's like, it's, it's put on steroids, you know, so people are now, now have low self-esteem. They have to form their identity in Christ. I mean, there's Bible verses about that. You know, you, you, it is no longer you who lives, but Christ in you, you know, all this crap, you're an ambassador for God. You're a vessel, you're all these things. So, so, uh, ultimately it's a power play. So it's, it's to strip someone down and then rebuild them up into their, into their own image thinking that they're making it into the image of this almighty God when, when in fact, it's actually just the, the image of their interpretation of what the scriptures say. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there's nothing more predatory than, than the evangelical and, and fundamentalist Christian belief system. Yeah. A lot of it is projection. Oh, 100%. You know, and I think you, you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about this moral panic about these groomers and so on and so on, and like saying that and making those accusations against people who are LGBTQ plus. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen it with black academics when it comes to the whole uh, critical race theory debate and mm, all these kinds right. of things. And it's like, it's a lot, a lot of this is projection because if you look at it, a lot of times evangelicalism will focus on bringing in people who are vulnerable, who are looking for something. And yeah. it's like, okay, they, 
you know, it's sort of like filling a vacuum. It's like, okay, well, this is your identity now. Yep. Like you by yourself, you're, you know, you're like, they, they try to diminish you. Like you're nothing. Like yeah. you are not your own, all the, that, that type of language. And it's like, it's, you know, you're, you're taking off the, the cloak of the world and putting on the cloak of Christ and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And so it's that language. And I think that if it was pretty much any other, if it was any other institution or any other group, we would call it, we would call it abuse. We would call it cultish. Yeah. Um, it would be looked down upon. But since religion, especially in U.S. culture, Christianity, since it has such a history and it's so embedded, yeah, it's accepted. Absolutely. And, and what's so funny is that, you know, I, I think I write about this in the book as well, but like you look at from the origins of Christianity and it's like the whole purpose My you know, my belief is that the whole purpose of why the Roman empire took up Christianity as its major religion was not because they actually believed in it, but they saw the power that it had to control people because like Paul was going in and teaching about, you know, how to be a Christian and how like he was defying Roman culture and so eventually, you know, they finally caught on and, and decided to make it the, the empire's main religion because they saw it as a, as a, as a malleable tool to keep people in control. I mean, that's the whole purpose of religion from the get go. You look at ancient Mesopotamia and the origins of religion. I mean, as society started to grow, then so, you know, so did the need to control the, those people. And so religion was an effective tool in keeping people compliant. And that's no different than what we see today, where, you know, people are compliant to their faith. They go and they vote, you know, against human rights issues in the name of Jesus uh, because they they see it as their godly calling. It's like, how how is that any different than any other types of uh, of abuse? I, I just it baffles me. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just, you know, I think that the the lack of self-awareness and the lack of just kind of seeing the big picture, I think. I think that really is where a lot of that comes from, just not being not being able to see that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's also reinforced with the idea of absolutism. So, you know, you, you say that this is absolute truth. Well, then you can't refute it because it's absolute truth. But then, you know, when you start to put the spotlight on it and start to see the holes that that are in it, it if anything, it keeps people more dependent because a fear of, you know, then, oh, well, that's the enemy. That's the devil. He's trying to deceive you and pull you away. And da, da, da. it's like, no, you're the devil. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the things that I thought was interesting in your story was, so you didn't mention it by name, but you, like when you talked about your time at quote unquote Bayside Church, mm-hmm. um, when like the church where you ultimately became a pastor, part of the pastoral staff. Without saying what it was, like saying it by name, you're talking about purity culture. So we talked a little bit earlier about purity culture, but for you, how did purity culture play out for you as being a closeted gay man? Yeah, it was so interesting (laughs) because like, I mean, it's so funny because I was this, you know, this person who struggled with same sex attraction, except I was, I was held at the same accountability as, as a straight male. So for me, it was okay in the sense that like, I, I mean, like I had to, I couldn't go be with women one-on-one or whatever, anything like that. But yeah, purity culture was interesting for a struggling homosexual because like there really were no rules for us other than, you know, you can't partake in your, you can't act on your homosexuality, which in and of itself is, is completely destructive and, and asinine. But, but, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I guess slipped through the cracks in that regard in the sense that like, I mean, I was held to the same standards, but they didn't affect me as much because I wasn't sexually tempted by women. You know, I did, I was told that, you know, based I couldn't, you know, hang out with women past like nine o'clock or something like that. And, and if I was, then a door had, you know, someone else had to be there and a door had to be open and all these stupid ass rules. So for me, it was more of an annoyance than it was a frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, but also, you know, I, I also saw what purity culture did, did to women in the church where they were treated as lesser than. So like a woman was never to speak out a turn. She wasn't supposed to, you know, um, you know, th- there were just certain rules, like they had to dress a certain way. And so for me, it was, it was more of like, it, it really hindered 
authentic relationships. I remember, I didn't write about this in the book, but I made friends with this woman. She was like one of my best friends and stuff. And and I ended up like opening up to her. And then she ended up like seeing this guy. And then, so, you know, the one time that we were hanging out while they were seeing each other, she told me that she couldn't, she couldn't hang out or talk to me anymore because even though I was struggling with same sex attraction, she was still feeling like she was cheating on him with emotional, uh, 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 emotional intimacy. Oh. And it, yeah. And it wow. baffled me. Yeah. It really that's, shook me. Yeah. It, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was very, it actually really shook me up. I was just like, wait, what? Like, I can't, I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> like, what, what is that? You know? And so it just got really awkward. But that was a lot of, of that church too. I mean, they were, they were, in hindsight, they were a cult. I mean, they, you know, they monitored everything I was doing, who I was talking to, who I was hanging out with, what I was listening to. I mean, it was, it was really bad. But, but yeah, for pre, in, in purity culture context, it was more of like my realization that authentic relationships would not manifest because of the rules of guys, you know, being tempted by women and such. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely something. Yeah, having lived through uh the whole purity culture thing, you know, it's one thing when it's like you know, cuz I think purity culture the way that it's constructed is geared towards it's geared towards opposite sex relationships and mm-hmm. like heteronormity. So it's like there's that and then there's like a lot of babying men. Yeah. In the sense that, like, oh, you know, women have to dress a certain way and act a certain way or else you're tempting men or you're causing men to stumble. And it's like, well, where is their agency? Like, where is their like it's like a low view. Yeah. It's like it's it's a low view of women, but then it's also a low view of men. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. It's so funny because, like, I look at that and I'm like, I mean. Masters College, I remember I was in the church at the time and Masters College like announced that they weren't going to allow women with with uh, wet hair to come to chapel anymore because it caused men to stumble. And I'm like, wow, are you really that weak? You know, like, are you really that feeble? Oh, my goodness. That's that's (laughs) wild. Like, I I can't. (laughs) Yeah, that's wow. (laughs) Yeah, it made national news because it was just so ridiculous. But it's also like. It's also like, isn't that more reason why we should have women leading? Yeah. <laughs> like, or men that, that you know, I, I think about like, you know, Selena, or, or I watch Veep and um, the character Selena, where she talks about, she it's in the context of abortion, but she's like, you know, if, if men could get an abortion, they could get it at an ATM. And it's kind of the same thing where it's like, everything is catered towards men. Like, it's not, you know, she jokes about it, but it's like, that's the world that we live in where like, you know, everything that's, that's, that, that relates to men's issues is, is easily accessible more when it comes to women's issues. It's, it, you know, it's like the women's suffrage. It's like, it's been going on for <laughs> over centuries, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something. <laughs> it stirs my pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I hear you. <laughs> so, Yeah. When deconstructing from evangelicalism and for you and for a lot of people, Christianity entirely, oftentimes when we're, de- when we're deconstructing, we often have to work through figuring out and in learning, to, learning how to embrace our own identities and agency. Mm-hmm. So for you, that exploration included what it meant to be open with your sexuality, to be openly gay as well as dealing with trauma from your time in ministry. Yeah. So what has been the most challenging aspect of deconstruction for you? Oh, great question. Um, You know, it's funny. The term deconstruction wasn't around when I started deconstructing. And I'm so thankful for all these groups that are right now that are on social media and connecting people together and such. But I had a really hard time for my first couple of years. You know, that's not to say that I still don't have a hard time. They just manifest themselves differently. But for the first two years, I ended up, you know, leaving the church, leaving the faith, moved to Los Angeles. And for a good two years, um, I had night terrors that I was going to hell. I was still pursuing homosexuality, going on on dates, having a good time. But it was still this nagging voice in my head saying that the Bible is true and you're going to hell and you're an abomination. 
and all these like crazy things. But you know, it's funny. It's, I think the process is, is constantly moving. I mean, where, where, where things I have, I've triumphed over new, new issues have arisen. Um, I, I've been very open and honest on social media, um, about my issues with erectile dysfunction and a lot of it having to do with, you know, my, my beliefs about myself and those being rooted in, in Christianity and thinking that I'm not worthy of anything good, thinking that I'm, I'm dirty, I'm rotten, I'm, I'm despicable, I'm, I'm unsightly or whatever it is, my body dysmorphia issues. And so that's actually currently something that I'm working on. And I guess you could kind of put in the umbrella of deconstruction because a lot of, a lot of the, the thoughts that I have about myself with sexual anxiety is, is surrounded around the ideas that, you know, my sexuality is an abomination. And, you know, even though I don't subscribe to, to any of those beliefs anymore, um, it's still very much rooted in, in my psyche because it's, it's something that, you know, neurological pathways are, are, I say it in the book, are a tricky bunch to retrain. What really like kind of kickstarted my, my journey was, and I write about this in the book too, uh, this guy named Sean in the book you know, I lost my identity in him. And then when things ended between us, I, I was, I was desperate. So I started going to therapy and Dr. Rachel, um, in the book was, was instrumental in reshaping the view that I had of myself. Um, and so there's still tools that I, that I practice today, um, like with affirmations and such and meditation and all of that, um, to, to really reprogram the, the deepest parts of my psyche to, to align with my, my value system and my goals now in, in, in pursuit. So I, you know, as an encouragement for those who are either currently deconstructing or have, you know, are still struggling or whatever, like this journey, this journey isn't, isn't one that we, uh, quote unquote overcome, but, but that we constantly are, are, uh, comes, comes in different forms, whether it be an imposter syndrome with work whether it be, you know, sexual impotency, whether it be um, self-loathing or depression or anxiety, just as long as we're constantly working on ourselves and we're pushing towards that greater good and knowing that that we are seeking an authentic and genuine life and that we create a community of, of people that are like us, that think that think like us, close community. I, you know, obviously we don't want to become an echo chamber or a silo. Right. Um, but, but, you know, we, you know, it's, it, I think it's a constant struggle in, in our species to, to, it, it's the constant evolution and expansion of our universe. So we're constantly growing, we're constantly evolving. Um, so yeah, take courage in that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think that's really, yeah, that's definitely good advice. And, um, you know, I think that that's very, that's definitely very helpful. Like you, I started to deconstruct before. I had a language for it or, or words to describe it. And uh, I think that that has been really helpful to have those words to describe that and to to be able to conceptualize what I'm going through. And I mean, even though it's been several years now, there's still things I work through as well. Um, and like I know you mentioned therapy and, you know, I'm a huge proponent of that you know, definitely like therapy, counseling, like talking to a professional, you know? And then the other thing you mentioned, like the other things that you mentioned in the book were, I think like for yourself, like having a support network and like building that and finding ways to be connected to yourself spiritually. And when I say spiritually, it's sort of a broadly defined spirituality, not, you know, not you know, it necessarily has to be like Christianity or it has to be like this box that we've been in for you know, several years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so for you, how has, how have those connections been helpful in your life post evangelicalism and post Christianity? Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. I mean, it's, it, it definitely has been, I mean, I, I'm currently on an SSRI that was prescribed by uh, my therapist as well as a psychiatrist that I saw um, because I know that my body doesn't produce the serotonin um, that's necessary to help me. And, you know, I'm constantly in a fight or flight mode. So I know that I need, you know, supplements in order to, to, you know, make sure that my body's working correctly. So I think that's a form of self care is being accepting and okay of your limitations and getting help and treatment for that. Um, I'm also very much a spiritual person. I, it's so funny. I, I, I talk about this in the book as well, but I remember 
being a kid and levitating above my body and then going to church with my grandma and just, uh, you know, thinking that the Bible was folklore where it was like that, that it didn't even compare to my experience of, of this supernatural experience that I had. And so being reacquainted to that, um, through like chakra healing, I, so my friend Alana is actually a chakra healer and that's how I got introduced to her. While I was going through my what I call LA spirituality, um, I was really you know I was trying on gems and all these different things and different you know workshops and all that, and she kind of was like my last stop and and she really taught me how to tap into my own energy source and to be able to to calm my nervous system down to be able to you know find that power within myself. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that I think we need to figure out, find out what works best for us, not one size fits all, you know, and, and, you know, I don't, I, I currently don't like boxes, if you will, like, you know, when, when people ask, like, you know, oh, you know, you know, what do you believe in now? Like, I guess, you know, I fit more in the agnostic area. Mm -hmm. But my, my idea of spirituality has been formed by my study of the cosmos, I'm very much into astronomy. Not so much astrology, uh, but astrology. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't gotten into that one yet because mm-hmm. I, it's you know, I, I have friends that are into it and it works for them and stuff. Yeah. But um, just like exploring the expansiveness of our universe, like you know, I, 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 I've been watching the Orville. It's just like one of my favorite shows right now. But there's a scene in there where they talk about how you know, once a species starts to explore space travel, they go one of two ways, either they accept that they're no longer the center of the universe or they ratchet up their xenophobia um, to preserve the, the superiority out of fear. And I feel like that's what it was for me, you know, like studying the spaces in the context of Christianity was very much explaining it through the lens of the Bible. Now it's very much like, wow, we don't know a lot of shit, you know, like we, there's so much out there. And, and what's so funny, you know, the Bible talks about a peace that surpasses all understanding I find that peace that surpasses all understanding by knowing that the universe is expansive and constantly growing and that that we are just literally a speck of sand in a, in a vast universe. That to me is comforting because it it takes away any notion or, or cl- anyone's claim of an absolutism on that. And, yeah. it, and it, it puts it in the hands of, of the individual to figure out for themselves what the meaning of life is. So. Um, I hope that answered your question, but yeah, it's very much for me, it's, it's, it was figuring out what are my likes? How do I tick? What are, what are, what do I find that serves me? Um, and letting go of the things that don't. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. Definitely. My gay church days is such a real and fascinating story. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I really got a lot out of it. That's why it took me a while because I was just like kind of digesting everything and just like Aww. this, this is so like, it, it's like, this is so real. This, you know, this is so real. And it's, you know, there's aspects of this that I can relate to. And, you know, even the what the parts where I may not necessarily be able to, and I know people who can, you mm. know? And so, I mean, I like, there, there are at least like, there's at least two people that I knew in, campus ministry that later on ended up coming out and ended up like either leaving the church or having sort of a different relationship with Christianity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's aspects that I can see my own story in it. And I, and I know that there's like things that other people can probably take from that. And so it's something that I think listeners should definitely pick up and, and definitely read. Where can they get my gay church days? Oh, thank you so much for that. That was really sweet. And that, that was my whole intention in writing is that people would just relate. Um, yeah, so it's on Amazon. It's in Kindle version. Uh, it's in paper paperback. It's also I also recorded an audio book. So if you want me to read you to sleep, I could do that. Um, nice. <laughs> it's fun. I, I loved it. That was fun. Uh, but the, the best place to do it is actually on my website at mygaychurchdays.com. Uh, the reason why I say that is, you know, I, so here's the deal. Full disclosure. I don't take any profit from this, this book. If anything, it's wildly in the red. 
because my whole heart and soul, you know, I have a day job, so I don't have to worry about about generating income from this thing. It solely is meant for the purpose of of helping people heal. And one of that elements is actually percentage of the proceeds goes to the Trevor Project, the LGBTQ hotline uh, for for uh, suicidal and depressed teens. Um, so, so that, that really, so, so purchasing the book on my website actually is the greater profitability margin, which then I'm able to allocate more to that organization. Also another full disclosure, I'm actually looking into, uh, switching up my alliance, uh, with a transgender organization. Um, you know, I've come, I absolutely love the Trevor project. I think they're absolutely amazing, but they're good. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they have corporate sponsors, they have, you know, celebrity sponsors and all of that. So I'm really looking to uh, come out actually with a second version of the book, um, and, and change that, uh, the, the, the beneficiary to be some sort of, um, uh, a transgender, uh, social group. So I'm, uh, so that's, that's in the works, but yeah, all that to say, uh, Amazon or my website, website's the better one. Okay, excellent. Heard of the Trevor Project. Uh, I've, it's, it's a great organization and what they're doing mm. is great. And also with everything going on with people who are transgender, honestly, I think that's great that you're looking for, for an organization to be able to be the beneficiary for a future version of the book. And so like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Yeah, they're just so under attack right now. And it just it, it really, you know, I've, I've been studying gay history. Um, and, you know, just seeing how the transgender community has been really been, you know, pushed under the bus in so many respects. And so I kind of see this as a way to be able to give back to that community after after so much BS. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that that makes complete sense. I, I get it. Yeah. What is next for you and what's coming up that you're most excited about? Yeah, that thank you. Um I actually am on a book tour right now. Um I'm well, not right now as we speak, but um I'm putting together my book tour. I have five spots uh throughout the south that I'm going to be going to. That's on my website. Um I'm looking at speaking engagements now too. Um okay. I'm starting yeah, there's some interest that's coming in, so I'm really excited about that. But yeah, I honestly like I I'm trying to figure out a way to really make this this organization, if you will, my gay church days, um, something that that is a source of of healing for so many people. And I know that my book is kind of the starting point for that. Uh, but yeah, I'm trying to branch out and trying to figure out different things. But yeah, between speaking engagements and the book tour, uh, so far that those things to be the things that are going to be materializing soon. But yeah, I'm not sure about other things. Oh, you know, we're, we're talking about possibly doing a, uh, doing a, a, a series on the book. Uh, I'm talking to a friend with that as well. So we'll see. It's, it's all, it's all up in the air. <laughs> okay. And, and I assume that, um, once that's, once that's in place, that's going to be posted on your website as well. Absolutely. Social media. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm mostly on Instagram. Just DM me. That's the way I love talking to people. You know, I would oh. love to hear from you. What's your Instagram handle? Uh, my Gay Church Day. So everything, so uh, my my Tumblr, my website, my Instagram, and my Facebook are all under, and my podcast are all under my Gay Church Days. That's good that everything's sort of unified. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that makes it a lot easier for people. Um, and you you mentioned briefly, like your podcast. Did you want to talk a little bit about what that's about? Sure. Yeah. So, so I started the podcast, um, actually, I think at the beginning of this year, uh, it was really a way to, to, you know, after getting my story out there, I was getting a lot of people DMing me and telling me their stories. And I came up with the idea one night to just kind of start a podcast and to start interviewing people. Right now I'm on a, on a break from it. Um, only because I've just been so busy with other things. Um, so I guess I'm, I guess I'm on a season break. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, unintended season break, but yeah, it's, it's very much just highlighting other people's stories, um, in that have gone through, you know, church experiences, um, or even just, you know, any type of experience of control and, and self discovery. So, and then I, I kind of do some episodes here and there where I kind of give my thoughts. The last one the episode that I posted was actually my journey with um, erectile dysfunction because I really think that that is a a, a, a large issue 
amongst men that's not talked about. A recent stat that I read, it's 25% of men struggle with erectile dysfunction in the United States, and that's only the men that report it. So, um, you know, especially in the gay community and, and the expectations of sex and all of that, um, I'm really, you know, using my, my privilege as, as a point of, of connecting people and, and feeling like they're not alone in that. Sounds excellent. All right. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we uh, end this? No, that was it. You, you're an amazing interviewer. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you very much, George, for coming on the program. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Potster Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing gets you new episodes once they come out so you don't have to wait. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I'm always on Twitter, so follow me there at potstirrercast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Freedom is not free.